And uh, a very warm, warm welcome to, to Jeff and Kylie as well. Great to see you guys. Sorry that we haven't actually mentioned Sydney along the way. That's, that's a great town too. <clears throat> and Norway. Oh yeah, the green-ups. Great. Well, welcome, welcome. And uh, yeah, and um, thank you, Toby. Toby has honoured us by actually... Um, um, Toby has turned up this morning in the correct traditional liturgical vestments for St. Barnabas, which is t-shirt, shorts, and bare feet. So that's great. That's how we started. That's great. That's, that's, where, yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, very, sorry. Very welcome. Um, well, uh, back on track. Uh, you may have heard of Occam's Razor. Um, <clears throat> Occam. Uh, Occam's Razor is a principle attributed to William of Occam, a uh, 14th century English Franciscan friar, scholar, philosopher, theologian. His idea in everyday language is that when we're looking at multiple explanations for something, the explanation that is simplest is usually correct. Uh, The explanation that is simplest is usually true. Occam's razor, as a problem-solving tool, is referred to not infrequently in film and in television, anything from crime scene detective TV shows through to Carl Sagan's film Contact, starring Jodie Foster. And the idea is beloved of people who might describe themselves as rationalists or perhaps atheists, And it is used by such folk, uh, usually to try to emphasize how unnecessary appeals to the supernatural are. Anti-supernaturalists, in my experience, people who believe there is no supernatural aspect to life, anti-supernaturalists, in my experience, love Occam's razor, even though Occam wasn't an anti-supernaturalist. No, he was a Christian and a friar. Well, as for me, on the other hand, Occam's razor strikes me as being highly unrealistic and of little value to everyday life. Uh, For me, as a student of biology, which I was uh, for the first nine years of my uh, university life after school, um, it um, seems to me that whoever it was who had invented the universe, uh, whoever it was, he clearly hadn't heard of Occam's razor. In first-year science, for example, I learned about how the kidney works. And in second-year science, I learned about how the kidney works in even greater detail. And in third-year science, I learned how nobody knows how the kidney works. (laughs) Every Wednesday afternoon, as an honors student in zoology, I attended the zoology department's weekly seminar, at which uh, zoologists, uh, local, uh, national, Uh, International speakers, every week we had visiting speakers, zoologists and biologists from all over the world who'd present their research. And as an honours student, uh, I was expected to ask insightful questions showing that I was paying attention. Um, uh, As an honours student, if we were able to ask a question or make a comment that revealed fatal flaws in the speaker's methodological approach, approach, that was extra brownie points. Send them home crying. I mean, yeah, survival of the fittest. It was, after all, the zoology department. 
But the, the thing that I remember, the thing that I took home week after week as I heard these visiting speakers, these researchers, was whether they were studying neural development in rats or the ecology of the Great Barrier Reef, um, always the more that they studied some biological system, the more they realized that it was infinitely more complex, infinitely more subtle, infinitely more awesome than anything they'd been capable of imagining before they began their research. Reality often beggars the human imagination. We think we can understand everything. We don't understand that we can't. Uh, Last week, um, we looked at the conclusion of Paul's second missionary trip. In our text for this week, we hear about the start of Paul's third missionary trip. It's in verse 23. If if you'd like to follow along, it, it might be a good idea. Verse 23 reads... After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Well, Antioch is Paul's home base, and so Paul sets out again, and in a single verse, our author, Luke, glosses over probably weeks or months or perhaps even a couple of years of hard work, ministry, teaching the scriptures, explaining the way of Christ, encouraging the disciples to know and trust Jesus. And we gloss over all of this until we get to Ephesus, which is going to be center stage for the drama of the next 46 verses. And this week we look at two things that happened in Ephesus. And both incidents present us with anomalies. Uh, Apollos, we see from today's passage in Acts, was eloquent and learned with an in-depth knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. He'd become a Christian at some unknown point, discipled by someone we don't know who'd led him to the Lord. But now we suddenly meet him, a mature Christian. His teaching was impressive and accurate. But there is a mystery about Apollos, And it's contained in verse 25. In the Pew Bible translation, the NIV, the translators have plastered over the mystery a little bit. And actually that's fair enough because the verse looks like it contains a contradiction. And if that's so, it's reasonable to imagine that you're not translating it right. But literally, this is how the verse reads. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he was fervent in the spirit. He spoke and taught accurately those things concerning Jesus, knowing only the baptism of John. Now, if you look carefully at your pew Bible, down the bottom of page 900, there is a little footnote, footnote C, explaining that indeed the phrase, with great fervor, is standing in place for the Greek, fervent in the spirit. And that phrase, fervent in the Spirit, elsewhere in the New Testament, always means in the Holy Spirit. So this is the mystery. This is the anomaly. Apollos is an on-fire Christian. He has received the Holy Spirit, and yet he hasn't been baptized in water. Or at least he hasn't been baptized uh, in Jesus' name. Yeah, he did receive John the Baptist's baptism way back in the day, but he hasn't been baptized as a Christian in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is an apparent anomaly because Luke, it would appear, Luke's already explained to us how all this conversion stuff works. 
In his gospel, he wrote about how John came to baptize with water, preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And in his sequel, the book of Acts, Luke explains further about how this is going to work. And he does it through Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. When Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that is Luke's understanding, if that is Luke's understanding of how things work, then that understanding is articulated well by the ACC, the Australian Christian Churches, a group of churches formerly known as the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal denomination. Here is their doctrinal position on baptism in the Holy Spirit. They write, We believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the bestowing of the believer with power to be an effective witness for Christ. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the new birth. In other words, it happens after conversion and after water baptism in Jesus' name. And it is received by faith and is accompanied by the manifestation of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance as the initial evidence. This is the Pentecostal position. Are they right? I'm going to answer that in a few minutes. But here we have in Apollos a Christian who has already received the gift of the Holy Spirit but has not been baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And so verse 26 appears to answer that problem. Priscilla and Aquila, noting that he was a great preacher and teacher, nevertheless knew that there was something to be corrected and they corrected it. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more, ac- more adequately. Seeing as that's in answer to the problem of him, quote, knowing only the baptism of John, unquote, we are safe in assuming that that ministry included, but wasn't limited to, baptizing him in the name of Jesus. And I think we are also safe in assuming that they knew it wasn't safe, to allow him to go on preaching and teaching if he hadn't been baptized. That they knew for some reason that wasn't a safe thing to do. Well, Luke then explains to us that Apollos went off to the church in Corinth, where in fact we know he was an enormous help and a key leader, a major pastor. His name is scattered through um, Paul's letters to the Corinthians. But then Luke confronts us here with another anomaly. You see, um, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul arrives in Ephesus and finds some disciples there. And now we're presented with another anomaly. Here we have a dozen Christians, uh, for verse 7 tells us that there were about 12 of them, a dozen Christians who haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. They have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is anomalous because, as we've just seen, Christians ought to receive the Holy Spirit as soon as they believe and are baptized. And that is precisely where the text takes us. Paul discovers that they, just like Apollos, have received John the Baptist's baptism, but they haven't been baptized in Jesus' name. 
Once that happens, the Holy Spirit comes on them in power and they speak in tongues and prophesy. And if we're right in all of our assumptions, that is what happened. However, if we just simply leave things there, we actually create problems for ourselves. And they're significant problems. There is a theological problem. The theological problem is this. When somebody believes in Jesus, that's, that's actually already the work of the Holy Spirit. How then can we understand the phenomenon of somebody believing in Jesus and yet not having the Spirit? This is a severe problem when we consider the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we meet Jesus in this age. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we see and know that the Bible is God's word. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we know God's will in our lives. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we find the strength and wisdom to reject sin and trust God. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we receive ministry gifts and are able to discern what gifts we've been given. And only through the Holy Spirit that we're molded and conformed to the image of Christ in our lives. You can't be an effective witness for Christ, to quote the ACC, if you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian and to not have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that would be a serious problem indeed. In actual fact, it's a contradiction in terms. And Paul makes that plain, writing in Romans chapter 8. He writes, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And there is the pastoral aspect to this as well. You see, there are many, many Christians in the world who passionately believe in Jesus. And they're they're mature and godly and they're bearing much fruit for Christ, but they've never experienced anything remotely like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as described here and elsewhere in the book of Acts. Frequently in the Bible, they've never experienced anything like that. And if you ask many of these Christians, if you ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit? I guess that many of them, like these Ephesian disciples, they'd be a bit perplexed as to quite how to answer that question. These theological and pastoral problems are so keenly felt by so many that some conservative scholars have reversed engineered the entire passage so that the word disciples in verse 1, they say it actually means disciples of John the Baptist. And thereafter, what we're watching is Paul convert essentially unconverted Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. They become spirit-filled Christians. And that appears to be a neat fix because it does resolve the theological tension. It's okay, they weren't real Christians at the start, so now we're seeing a small bunch of Jews, uh, happen to be disciples of John the Baptist, we see a small bunch of Jews come to faith in Christ. That's great, it resolves the theological tension. But no, no, it will not do. It does violence to the text. Uh, the, the word disciple, it does, it, yeah, it, it actually just means student. It's not a religious word. It just means student. As such, we meet many different types of disciples, many types of students in the New Testament. The, John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees, they had disciples. Lots of different types of disciple. But here in the book of Acts, the word is used consistently by Luke as a technical term. It is how he routinely refers to Christians. When Luke says disciple, he means Christian. 
And if Luke was here today in the congregation, one of you would have to whisper in his ear and say, every time Stephen says Christian, he means disciple. Because he uses the word Christian only twice. They're disciples. He uses the word as a technical term. If Luke had meant to introduce us in chapter 19, verse 1, to a group of disciples of John the Baptist, he would have qualified the word disciples with the phrase of John. It is so improbable that Luke means that they weren't Christians as to be effectively impossible. These are Christians we're meeting here. Other scholars argue uh, that, that they, only, they only seems to be disciples. Well, that's another interesting idea. Unfortunately, technically, that's called a guess. And it has no supporting evidence whatsoever. Clearly, Paul knows that they are believers in Jesus. And coming in mid-conversation, we hear Paul ask them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Scholars, by the way, think that it is their job to explain the text. That's why it so very rarely occurs to them that maybe the truth is that they can't. So here we are back at square one. The anomaly of Christians who haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. Something that, biblically speaking, ought to be a contradiction in terms. Maybe the Pentecostals are right. Maybe they're right then when they say that baptism in the Holy Spirit is an experience distinct from conversion, something that happens after conversion and baptism, with speaking in tongues as the initial evidence. Occam's razor would lead us to precisely that conclusion, for this is the simplest explanation of the observations. But as for me... I think that they are probably wrong. And I know that's a really dangerous thing to say here at St. Barnabas because when I say they are probably wrong, I've upset probably most of you. Because half of you are saying, no, Stephen, they're not probably wrong, they're right. And the other half of you is thinking, no, Stephen, they're not probably wrong, they're definitely wrong. So let's embrace the complexity of this problem. Now, on the one hand, let's talk about the experience of the interpreter because everybody tends to interpret Scripture through the lens of their own experience. And it's very, very difficult not to do this. So what's my experience? Well, I, I'm going to have to tell you. If you please, I'm sorry. I'm just talk about my experience. I was baptized as a 17-year-old, sprinkled in the chapel of Christ Church Grammar School by the school chaplain, Father Ted. It was Easter time, 1984. However, I actually, I actually don't think I was actually converted until age 24. That's when, if people ask me, when did you become a Christian? I say, oh, at 24. Uh, it was Easter time, 1992. That's when I surrendered my life to Jesus. A few months later, at an evening service here in this room, a visiting preacher asked people if they would come forward if they wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, this morning I asked Sue Taylor, were you here that night? She said, yes, I was. Were you here that night? Can't remember? That's okay. Um, uh, with a degree of trepidation, I came forward. 
Um, and I joined about midway, a line of, say, 24 or so, two dozen people, and I was somewhere in the middle, probably standing about where you are, Jeff, because there were no chairs. Um, as the preacher began praying over people, um, what happened was that they started falling over backwards. And I was a little bit terrified, to be perfectly honest, and I prayed that God would not make me fall over backwards. Um, I was seriously frightened. I really was. Um, but I didn't fall over backwards. As she prayed for me, I knew that something was different straight away, and I felt it. Um, actually, what happened was my hands were on fire. Um, it wasn't painful, and it wasn't pins and needles, but my hands were on fire. Uh, and I felt it plain as anything. Uh, and it was extraordinary. Um, three years later, I received the gift of tongues at a John Wimber conference. It was Easter time, 1995. And it was incredible. It was just extraordinary. As, as the Spirit filled me again, I just started worshipping and praising Jesus with all of my heart. The Spirit took over and I just started praying in tongues. And it was amazing. I've continued to pray in tongues ever since. It's important. I would love to be able to boast, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, that's my experience, and look, it gels well with Pentecostal expectations. So that's experience. Let's think about Scripture. Well, there's the evidence of Scripture, and actually, if we're going to reject this thing, we all need to concede that the ACC doctrine is, is actually, at first glance, a pretty accurate response to the evidence that Luke gives us in Luke and Acts. It certainly does appear in the Gospel of Luke and in his sequel, the book of Acts, people believe, they get water baptized, then they receive the Holy Spirit. That's the pattern that Jesus set for us. That's what happened to him. He always believed, but he was baptized in water one day, and suddenly afterwards he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to the disciples. They'd been following Jesus around for three years or more before the Spirit came upon them in power on the day of Pentecost. That's what happened with the Samaritans, chapter 4. They believed, they were baptized, but it was only a few days later when the apostles turned up that they were filled in power with the Holy Spirit, the laying on of apostolic hands. Same with Cornelius and his household. The order is reversed somewhat in chapter 10, wherein Cornelius and his household, they believe, then they receive the Holy Spirit, then they get baptized in water. And I think that's done for effect. So the apostles can see for themselves the evidence of God actually touching unclean Gentiles who have been made clean by the blood of Christ. Same with Paul. Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He believes. Then he's baptized by Ananias who comes to heal him, baptize him, pray over him, lay hands on him that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we assume, of course, he was. And essentially every time, baptism in the Holy Spirit is evidenced by spirit-inspired utterance of two types. Firstly, intelligible spirit-inspired utterance. That's called prophecy. They praised and they worshipped and they prophesied spontaneously in their normal everyday language, in Greek. And everyone who listened understood. The second phenomenon is unintelligible spirit-inspired utterance. That's called tongues. They praised and worshipped and prophesied spontaneously either in an unknown foreign language, or in spiritual angelic languages. 
Either way, they weren't necessarily understood by anyone present, neither by the speaker nor by the listener, except perhaps that someone could act as an interpreter, and we know that Paul could act as an interpreter. Well, Paul explains more about these two gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. I guess what I'm saying is we, we all need to acknowledge uh, in all of this that the book of Acts, the book of Acts actually gives us our only close-up look at conversions in post-Pentecost New Testament times. We don't know what conversion looks like except the Acts tells us. The, epistle, the epistles, they give us very, very sparse information about what conversion looks like. But when it appears, it conforms with the Acts picture. For example, Paul asks the Galatians in the book of Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, they believed and they, then, then, then they received. It always conforms to this idea that conversion is accompanied soon afterwards by a powerful experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, such that new converts speak in tongues and prophesy one or the other or both. Um, and in fact, just to add to the complexity, the book of Acts, well, baptism in the Holy Spirit as a phrase is used interchangeably with the phrase being filled with the Holy Spirit. And some folks, like the apostles, they're filled with the Holy Spirit on multiple occasions. So we need to see that if we declare the ACC doctrinal statement to be mistaken, we need to be aware that we are moving away from the plain meaning of the Bible in order to insert a more sophisticated one. Um, we also need to acknowledge that we're moving away from the plain evidence of our eyes insofar as it is not unusual for us to have experienced our conversions in this way too. So, given the danger of this, why am I deciding that this statement is probably wrong? Well, I'm doing so because I believe that if you accept this statement, you do violence to other biblical texts. And one key to responsible biblical interpretation is that you never interpret one text so that it now does violence to other biblical texts. So, I, I don't have time to uh, present to you all my workings, all my supporting texts. But I think that we can establish from the New Testament that at conversion, a Christian is someone who believes in their heart that Jesus is alive, risen from the dead. And in response, they confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thirdly, Christians are people who know in their heart that God is their father and that they can call him Abba, Daddy. These things are not only evidence of conversion, they also appear as evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. For everyone who confesses freely with their mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord, if, if you're doing that, you're prophesying. You can't, do it, you can't do it and mean it except by the Holy Spirit. Apollos, in preaching powerfully the Lordship of Christ, in explaining the Holy Scriptures, he was prophesying fervent in the Spirit. Where does this get us? Well, today you, you might be thinking to yourself, Stephen's just gone round and round in circles with this one. And of course you would be right, because that's just what we've done. Um, 
But I think we can say that it allows us to say that it is wrong. It is wrong to completely separate conversion from baptism in the Holy Spirit. If, if you are a real Christian, if you're a real Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be worried about that. If that's so, what on earth is going on in today's text? For Paul encounters Christians who do not seemingly have the Holy Spirit. The best answer, I think, is to acknowledge that there is no way of answering this question without creating other difficulties, other questions. The text is mysterious. Conversion is, I believe, a highly complex reality, probably too complex for us to completely understand. In first year Bible college, I learned how conversion works. In second year Bible college, I learned how conversion works in even greater detail. And today, of course, I have no idea how conversion works. And probably only God does. These two stories uh, this morning present anomalies. We meet a Christian who has the Spirit, but is not being baptized in water in Jesus' name. Next, we meet 12 Christians who do not have the Spirit, nor have they been water baptized, but are nevertheless believers. In, in both cases, water baptism in Jesus' name, follows. That is implied in one text and explicit in the other. Baptism in the Holy Spirit occurs for the group of 12 after the water baptism, accompanied by the laying on of hands. These texts, in line with the entire New Testament, assume that becoming a Christian essentially has four separate characteristics or aspects to it. Firstly, firstly, repent, firstly, repentance. Secondly, faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, baptism in water in the name of Jesus. And lastly, fourthly, baptism in power in the Holy Spirit accompanied by tongues and or prophecy. The exact relationship between these four things is mysterious. So then, Assuming that I'm vaguely right about any of this, I'm going to ask three questions and I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. Uh, let's respond to the text. Our right response not being to explain the text, but rather to submit to the text, to allow it to draw us closer to Christ. That's the role of the text in our lives. So here are my f three questions. Firstly, um, are you a Christian? Do you know in your heart that Jesus is alive? That's great. Are you absolutely convinced that Jesus is Lord? Maybe the answer to those questions is for you, no. Maybe you're used to saying those things, but that's just because everybody around you says those things. Um, are, are you a real Christian? And if you're concerned that you're not actually a Christian, would you like to become a Christian today? Um, hands up if you would like to become a Christian now. 